Crude Audacity Podcast. audacity podcast the podcast that talks shop shit and of course all things strategy with oil patch influencers i am Catherine mills and before we begin today wherever you are listening from go ahead and leave us a rate and review and if you happen to be watching on youtube go ahead and click that little subscribe button for me and that way you can stay up to date on all things oil energy and of course the crude audacity podcast as always we greatly appreciate your comments your feedbacks your additional questions i love seeing your engagement and i know our influencers do too so much appreciated and if you have any questions for today's influencer please feel free to drop them in the comments below and i will make sure they make it his way <laughs> Now, today's topic is one, it's a serious one. It is one where it is discussed constantly, but bears repeating. You will hear people in industry say, we are in the business of oil, but as everyone knows, we are in the business of money. And that's really not lost on anyone, especially here in 2020. No money means no job, no business, and potentially no industry. So it is a hot button topic for what the future holds. However, for most of us, we only touch a small portion of that cycle and never really get into the weeds to understand the big picture, the many faces of money, or hell, the even the dark side of money. So one thing is for sure. Money is changing. The face of money is evolving into what I call lean money, and it's putting a spin on things. So today's influencer has seen it all. He has been in the weeds. He has sought the funds. He has, <laughs> he has had to prove it up to private equity. So if you are doing the same, today's episode is for you to hear a firsthand what I should have known, what I did learn, and how I succeeded. With all that said, Blake Smith, welcome to the Crude Audacity Podcast. Thanks, Catherine. I'm glad to be here. So you are an Arkansas boy, which means yes. you got to ask. Right. <laughs> is it Joe Blake Smith or is it Blake Smith? No, it's Blake Smith. Okay. <laughs> the whole story behind that is like sometimes your parents punish you and uh, they give you, you know, they call you by your middle name. My first name is Joseph. So um, I just kind of play off of that. Um you know, my parents well, passed when I was actually pretty young. My dad was named Joe. So I put Joe in there. And, and actually, my daughter's name is Sadie Joe. So it is a Southern thing. It is. We got to love sure. the double name. Yeah. Well, you know, you and I've chatted a little bit about this before and really building into what it means to honestly experience the many faces of money, the dark side of money, if you will. And I have a very strict policy of I don't listen to anyone who hasn't been through it themselves. Success failures, learning opportunities, whatever. Um, so before we jump into it, give us your story. How did you fall into oil and gas? Where has it taken you? What are you doing now? Okay, sure. So, I mean, the story really kind of starts, let's say like pre-2006. Um, I, I went to I went to law school, decided to go to law school straight up. It was, it was law school or med school, right? And sometimes, trust me, I look <laughs> back and I'm like, maybe med school would have been a better decision, a little more 
you know, practical and useful. But anyway, I, I opted for the law school, practical, quick, three-year kind of deal and and did that, pushed through it. I remember like being my second week in law school and thinking, this is not what I want to do with my life. Like, You don't want to be a corporate lawyer? <laughs> for sure, I don't want to be a lawyer, right? And I would like lie awake in bed and be like, oh my God, what did I do? To I mean, what am I doing? But I decided, hey, let's just push through it, get the education. So I always say, like, people ask, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a lawyer by education, but by education only, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the prerequisite is like, you know, I just or, – or that's a preemptive statement. Like, I, I only claim to be a lawyer for the education purpose. You but, suck it up and you get the project done. <laughs> right, get it done and got through it. And then during law school, I, since I already knew I was blessed early in law school saying – I, I did not want to do that for the rest of my life. So I had a, a, a friend in town that I had gone to high school with. I mean, the rock in like Arkansas is not unlike Mississippi or in any other small Southern town. Everybody knows everybody. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's how true. That operates. There so, is no hiding and you can always call someone to help hide a body. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Make sure you get the right person for that. So. Um, no, but so uh, I went to high school with a guy and his dad had the, basically the largest commercial real estate development firm in, in Arkansas and still does. And, and so I decided I want to go to work for him and, mm -hmm. and learn brokerage and, and development of real estate, because I, I thought the creation, the power of creation, building things like that, putting the entrepreneurial spirit of like, that's what my parents were. They were entrepreneurs. So it came mm -hmm. naturally to me to, Hey, let's see if we can put this and this together to create something. Right. Hey, Southerners are hard workers, man. I mean, you know, and, and it's always like, Hey, you know, you're either going to work. My dad used to say, you know, you can break your back or, or, you know, working, or you can use your mind and mm -hmm. your brain. And so, so I, anyway, that's a tangent, but I ventured off into commercial real estate development. I cut my teeth there and learned like what it was like to call people that really didn't want to hear from you and didn't care who you were, yeah. but to try to pitch some sort of idea to them that, Hey, I can help benefit what you're doing. This is how, and, and hey, deliver that message and, and sell them on the, I mean, cause you're always selling, right? I mean, that's right. probably the primitive deal here is like, you need to be able to sell. I don't care who you are or what business you're in. It doesn't matter if you're a lawyer, you're a doctor or you're a business owner, you're going to have to sell. So, mm -hmm. I learned the commercial real estate development business and got into that, got out of law school, took the bar, hated it, was the worst experience of my entire life. Um, there's a whole story behind that, but I'll save it. It just, let's just get, boil it down to it was miserable. And <laughs> I got through it, I passed. And then I remember the guy that I was working for came to me and said, you sure you don't want to be a lawyer? You know, you did pass the bar. And I said, no, no, I'm certain I don't want to be a lawyer. So I learned commercial real estate development and learned what that was about. And, and it's not unlike, right. I mean, it's the, it's the, you're dealing with the surface estate there. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're like one of the only countries in the world where we've got a divided surface and mineral estate. So, right. you, so someone can own the minerals. Another person can own the surface. So I learned what it was like to deal and do things uh, in the, in the realm of the surface estate. Well, the Fayetteville shell being from Arkansas was like the one trick pony that everybody thought was going to be, you know, the most amazing thing in the world. 
It was and a big it, deal for a while, yeah. It was for a second. It was really probably a big deal because Aubrey McClendon was in, you know, entrenched in it, and he brought Chesapeake in. Yeah, it's a big name. <clears throat> you know, and he put whenever he pushes into an area, well, he's gone now, unfortunately, but when he would push into an area, I mean, it drove the market, you know, okay. and it really drove the market to borrow something from Robert Schiller over at Yale, like to, into irrational exuberance, you know, mm-hmm. like people would just get in there and start paying – crazy prices on things that didn't never made sense never would make sense. But, but we'll get to that. That kind of ties into what you're talking about with like the, the flippant, you know, yeah. nature of private equity and what, how that drives something totally different. But when I was dealing with commercial real estate, I started seeing that, okay, like I can also get these people to possibly sell their minerals. And now all of a sudden the Fayetteville shale is going on. The minerals start to have value. You know, XTO, which is Exxon, was in here. BP was in here. They were a mm-hmm. big player. They've all since Every left. big player. They, sw- <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, they, they follow the money, so to speak. They, right. they follow the popularity. Right. Exactly. And so what, so not to, to beat a dead horse, but the, the big deal that, that really made my, um, made me like stick my, my hands into oil and gas was I had a, a partner at the time or somebody that I worked with, so to speak. Um, that we found, we stumbled across like, looking up records that Union Pacific Railroad mm. had had some right of way easement stuff that yeah. uh, lots of that ended up being, you know, put together it, alone. It didn't look like much, but put together, it was like it was in Independence County, Arkansas. OK, and and it was all along the railroad and it was just this buffer right away. And we we saw that it's open like Union Pacific still owns it. Right. So. Yeah. So we went to Omaha. <laughs> and 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 literally went through like microfilm, microfish stuff at Union Pacific to see, okay, yes, they own that. Okay, yes, they own that, yes, they own that. And got investors to cut a check for four million dollars to buy this all these right away mineral rights and later sold them to XTO. And I didn't have a big cut of that deal, but it it, it was a big deal. It made a lot of money yeah. for a lot of people. And it was a learning experience. You don't have to have a big cut to walk away with a lot of knowledge. Right. And so that just showed me even more so that like back to your, what ties into this whole deal, the Disney, the Disney part, Imagineering, right? I mean, that was like, I was like, wow, that, that is what Imagineering is. Like yeah. the, the idea that, Hey, there's something out here of value. If I can find, it's almost like a treasure hunt, you know? Oh, it like, is. Like yeah. I'm, I can f- maybe find this thing that has value to this person over here and put the two together and then make money that way. Yeah. And, and so that's, that was kind of launched me on like, Hey, you can make, you can make a lot of money doing basically uh, mineral right arbitrage for lack of a better term, which is just, you know, you you can <laughs> buy a really it. good term. <laughs> You know, I mean, you can buy, it's as simple as you, you figure out that you can buy a cheeseburger on third street for $5 and sell it over on seventh street for $10, you know, and that's basically, you know, that's, that's gourmet. right. That's yeah. That would be an expensive cheeseburger, but you know, it is out there somewhere. Yeah. Um, but that, so that's how I, I, I kind of launched into it. And then I mm-hmm. thought, well, then I just kind of got entrenched in it. Like this is, I fell in love with it, you know? Yeah. Because There's the one thing there is an oil and gas high. There totally is, and the one thing, Catherine, is about oil and gas that I, I think, uh, and I heard it was a, a guy that I worked with. He's retired now. He's about sixty-seven years old. But James Hernsberger, and he 
he, he was the CFO at my first company. And he would always tell me, he would say, the oil and gas market is the only imperfect market left in the world. And, what, and if you what really do you mean by that, what he means by that is like the transparency is not there. Mm -hmm. The things that check a market usually and keep it in check, the checks and balances are not necessarily there in the oil and gas market. You look at the real estate market, right? There's an MLS system. Everything's mm -hmm. listed. You can look up, you know, comps on everything. You can't really do that in oil and gas. Stuff's hidden. The yeah. market, the market's just not transparent. There's all these people in the broker chain. I mean, you don't know who's really got what. I mean, a lot of the times when you do a transaction, it's like, now this person's pitching it to you, but they don't have title to it. And that's fine. But it's like, there's all this kind of like game of, of charades going on, you know? Yeah. But, there's a so, Ponzi scheme for sure. Well, and that's why there's so much opportunity in it though. Mm -hmm. There's so much opportunity to make money because it's not transparent like a lot of other markets. I mean, the stock market, you know what the hell is going on in the stock market? Well, you may not know what's going on, but you can see the trades. You know, you can see the movement. I follow Donald Trump's tweets to know which way I should not. <laughs> and that's probably a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good strategy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I The oil and gas thing, then I, I just, it, it blew up from there. It was like, well, there's there's this stuff going on in Oklahoma and there's stuff going on in Texas. And, and we were leasing against... We were leasing for Hess in mm -hmm. the Eagleford a long time ago um, against basically bumping up against Cody Campbell and John Sellers of Double Eagle. And they've gone on to do amazing things and kept competing with them on leasing campaigns. And we've done I've done everything from leasing campaigns to basically basically running mineral right funds, you know, that were creative in that in that space. So. And, and it's I've had friends and family money behind me. I've had no money behind me and mm -hmm. I've had private equity money behind me. And probably the most fun, to be honest, was when I had no money behind me. And it was like, hey, you're scrapping. It's up yeah. to you. You are owned and, by and, nobody. And, and you're owned by nobody. You're not beholden to anybody except for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so um, yeah, we can talk more about that. But that's I think that's a very important thing to consider with a lot of people out there. Well, right now you have Golden Bear Capital. So tell right. us about that real fast. How did you actually evolve into that? Because that's something that's on the front of everyone's mind right now. In a downturn, that's when the entrepreneurial spirit comes out. But with the face of money changing, uh, the game, the rules have changed. So right. what are you working on? So, I mean, it's important to rewind and kind of go back to where we started. And and once I, I had the experience in commercial real estate and oil and gas, I, I combined those two uh, disciplines basically to say, hey, I had friends and family that wanted to invest money. You know, once you start seeing a little bit of success, you see people around you go, well, he's successful at this. Like, can I get in it a little yeah. bit? You know, I want to piece of it. I can do that too. Or, you know, Don't I just or I want to ride on it. Right. I want to yeah. piece of it. So, you know, people start asking and, and then my approach was like, let's look at some things historically. Let's look at some people that are way smarter than I am and, and let's learn from them. You know, let's learn from the Buffets, the Charlie Mungers. I mean, everybody from like I read everybody from, you know, Richard Branson to Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich to just, every, you know, anything that how to win friends and influence people. Just any book on business. Robert Kiyosaki's Rich Dad, Poor Dad, amazing. You know, that's like, I, that's where I would start with everybody is there. Oh. Like the difference between the rich dad and the poor dad in that, in that, 
that book is amazing. Like the thought process of an entrepreneur versus somebody that's working for just that paycheck. Yeah. That nine to five working for the weekend. Right. And that's, I mean, that's, so that's the best read that I would recommend initially, but, (laughs) but nonetheless, that's things got started with me saying, Hey, it seems like to recession proof my portfolio Mm -hmm. or the people's money that want to invest with me and my own money, you know, I need to look for an internal hedge. So not like a stock market hedge where you're saying, Hey, I'm going to put this costless collar on, on on this trade or whatever. And and this stock and basically you're, you know, selling a put, buying a call, whatever. Um, I think that I wanted to see like, Hey, what can I do internally to make this like the thesis of my entire, my entire approach and was, Mm -hmm. Hey, I can combine real estate surface real estate stuff with this oil and gas stuff because it seems like they're inversely correlated when one is doing really well it typically historically and this is not always there's always you know an outlier there are but, anomalies yeah right but but typically one's up and one's down i mean look mm-hmm. at it right now that's pretty obvious i mean i think we're headed for a shit storm in the real estate market pretty soon because of covid but typically oh, absolutely yeah typically one's up and one's down though and that's how that works so like right now, I mean, cap rates are tight in the real estate market, tighter than I've ever seen them. Mm-hmm. Development's crazy. And uh, in the oil and gas market, obviously, like negative $42 WT. I mean, that's insane. I've, that's a black swan event. You can't plan for that, right? I mean, no one, no one did. <laughs> there's no planning for that. It's just, it, it's like the day the earth stood still, you know, when that happened. I, I remember sitting in my office with my business partner and going, Holy shit. Like we could go down to the vending machine and, and buy like a thousand candy bars for, you know, and still come out ahead on a, uh, on a barrel of oil. It's, it's mm-hmm. insane. You know? So I, I think that the effects of that are going to be long-term, very long. Well, People are still struggling to understand it. They don't understand yeah. how demand's going to rebound. I call it the demand for demand. And, you know, it kind of went back and proved that does America really have energy security when we don't control the global tap? Because all we had to do was have two other players throw a fit with each other, throw in a little bit of an epidemic and (laughs) holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's uh, geopolitically, like obviously the landscape of of our world right now is... that's hard to even like wrap your head around, right? That's conceptualizing what all is going wrong and how like polarized we are as a nation and as a world is. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's difficult. So politically things are just, oh, and then obviously we don't have to talk about this now, but with the election up up and coming, um, you know, policy, energy policy is going to be a huge deal. Oh, um, yeah. It's it's on the forefront of every platform, which I'm actually excited about, but I don't know that anyone's gotten it right. But going back to that, you are, so you guys, what are y'all doing right now? Are you building uh, funds right now? Okay. So along the way, I started with a company called Rock Capital Group, which is, was mm-hmm. my first iteration of basically our, pri- it's kind of private equity, like friends and family money. Hey, we're a private shop and we invest, right? So we started there with with some vehicles inside of Rock Capital Group, and that transformed transformed into Rock Capital Partners. And the reason that it did was 
transitioning of like actual partners in and out. So we changed the name. Um, and that's just kind of, as you go, it's like your team changes. It has your team to change. It's going to change. You're never going to like stay married forever. I mean, some people do, <laughs> right. But like typically it's they're so unhappy. Southern of you. <laughs> right. <laughs> typically they're unhappy. Right. So, so I, I just think that, uh, you're going to just expect that your relationships are going to come and go some, you know, or at least the, the passion. So mm-hmm. I've had divorces and marriages inside the business world many, many times. Some have been ugly and some have been mutual and like, okay, we probably just need to move along. That's okay mm-hmm. though. I mean, that's going to happen. If you I've always said, if you play the game long and hard enough, you there's an inordinate amount of shit that's going to happen to you. Absolutely. You're going to get in lawsuits. You're going to get in. I mean, because people are not always happy with what you do. In fact, most of the time, they're not going to be happy with what you do. And that is the trick, right? That goes back to. So then this is the third iteration, really. Rock Capital Group, Partners, then Golden Bear Capital. And really, we named that after my dad because Golden Bear Capital, because he was nicknamed the Golden Bear. So that's not after Jack Nicholas. Good. I like that. Right. So I named that after him. But but essentially, it's just the transitioning of partners along the way, mm-hmm. in and out. And so this is the third iteration. And it's different because Rock Capital Group was friends and family and very, I call it captive capital, right? That's like, hey, that's us. That's us. It's just friends and family. And others. Well, they're investing in you, not investing in the, the plan, so to speak. Right. And it's typically a lot more flexible and a lot more forgiving. Okay. I mean, that's just a rule of thumb. So captive capital, friends and family forgiving, flexible. Mm-hmm. Then Rock Capital Partners was like, oh, you know what? Like, why don't we go big here? And that's like an intriguing thing when you're having some success, right? Like maybe we should try the big deal. And then you've got people that say to you, in my case, that came to me and said, you know, from Dallas and whatnot, saying, hey, you know, we're back. This was like a fund to funds deal. And I don't mind disclosing that this was a deal that was backed by the Catholic diocese. And the Catholic diocese money was being, so that's kind of like, there's a chain of command in private equity, right? Yeah. So it's typically like a sovereign fund at the top. It's like some type of sovereign fund, which being like something like the Catholic diocese or a sovereign wealth fund or a pension fund or a life insurance fund or whatever. That money is like 5% money, right? Maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe cheaper. Okay. So that's what they want on their money. So they give you a hundred million dollars and they expect three to 5% annually. They just want you to be safe with it. And they have so much money that they're just like, here, we can't put it all to work. Then they well, give they've it been around for a while. They should have quite a bit. Right. And they give it to the, then they give it to somebody in private equity, private equity, which is just a management team that says, Hey, we'll deploy this capital for you. Mm-hmm. And that private equity goes to somebody like me or another group like, Cody Campbell and John Sellers with Double Eagle. I'll mention them because like they just got backed by Apollo for like seven hundred and fifty million earlier this year. Uh, you know that was uh, I don't know remember what round for them, but that's like okay. So Apollo or somebody like that backs you, and they come in and they commit to to your team. That's all good and fine and sounds like wonderful, right? Mm-hmm. But that money says, hey, I want fifteen percent. So my mm-hmm. spread is I'm giving the the sovereign fund. Five percent. I'm going to make a ten percent spread, right? Because you're giving me fifteen first mm-hmm. and foremost. So before you make a dime, buddy, you're you owe me. You got to pay the piper fifteen percent annual. Yeah, that is where you get 
pigeonholed. And not only do you get pigeonholed, that's where this whole irrational exuberance thing goes crazy because people have to, somebody gives you like they did me start out with 50 million. Somebody gives you 50 or hundred or $200 million. And they say, Hey, you got to go spend this. Cause you, and then you've got the gun to your head, the literal gun to your head because yeah. you have to pay a return on it. You don't get to back out because the asset no. didn't go well. Yeah. And you can't just say, Hey, no, no, no. I can't. I'm giving it back. Second, second thought, you know, oh, <laughs> you're, no. you're, you're sure Once in your you plan on the dotted line, yeah. you are owned. <laughs> right. You, and you pitch them a plan and by God, it better work. I mean, it better work. So unless you are just like super, super ready. <laughs> and I don't think anyone really will ever be super ready, but unless you are damn sure that you are going to, I mean, and that's the thing about the, that's the thing about the oil and gas market. How can you be sure when oil might just all of a sudden go to negative $42 a barrel? Mm -hmm. Because no project works at that level. It doesn't matter. So on that point, you have really taken that Disney term imagineering and you have applied it to recession proofing your portfolio, your businesses, your honestly, your trajectory. So can you kind of take us through what that actually means and how you are applying it and what you're doing in terms of the energy industry to apply that. Right. So I think like that's important to note with golden bear and our approach now is like, okay, let's look at the climate right now. Politically, Mm -hmm. let's look at socially the climate, which is ultimately going to economically be the climate, which we don't, you know, I have friends in the multifamily business. I have friends in the, like a real estate business with big that own tons of big office buildings across the United States. You think about like, okay, if you own a hundred high rise office buildings across the United States in a fund or a REIT, or I'd be pretty scared right now. You've got well, all this even work Denver, from home. You know? Yeah, even Denver, people are piling out of it because they're sick of walking down the street and getting harassed by protesters just right. alone. They don't want to spend the money to own the office building because why do it? Why hold on to that? Right. And it's like, okay. And, and this is in little rock, little bitty little rock. Right. Mm-hmm. But our, one of the, my firm or my, my group, Golden Bear Capital, our, we're managed, all of our money's managed through regions, private wealth management. Well, that's just regions bank, which is a large regional bank around here. Mm-hmm. And, and they have a, a building named after them downtown. Well, they had seven floors of the building. I talked to my guy the other day over there and he said, we're condensing down to one. So if you look at that and you're a landlord, yeah, you're a landlord. You're going, I just maybe took like a 10%, 15% occupancy haircut there. I mean, (laughs) I hate to get on the real estate thing, but I guess what I'm saying overall is to recession proof your portfolio right now, what do you need to do? Well, definitely not all the eggs in one basket, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so let's talk about it in a global business sense. And to me, that is, hey, I'm going to still play in what I know. I'm going to stick with the real estate game. I'm going to adapt and adapt there. I'm going to adapt in the oil and gas market. And what do I think is adapting the oil and gas market right now? I think if you're drilling oil and gas wells right now, you are so crazy. That well, I just- <laughs> very few people. I mean, I think the I mean, only ones that are really happening are just uh, because there's an agreement. It has to be held. Continuous drilling. Yeah. 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 But I mean, yeah, like wildcatting anymore, stuff like that. I mean, that's like 
That might be dead for a decade. That's it's going to be dead, I think. And I'm not going to say like Boone Pickens, like this is uh, you know it's over for good or anything, but like it's it's going to be a long term recovery. And so I think like I look at the mineral side of the game as like that's probably the niche for me mm-hmm. uh, for what I know because midstream like storage and gathering and all that stuff like that's out of my bailiwick. You know, I don't know enough about that to, to talk about it and be intelligent. So I'm not going to, but as far as minerals are concerned, I mean, that's a long perpetual asset, right? Long-term mm-hmm. hold, you can hold it, be ready to hold it. As long as you've got good rock in a good area, it'll probably be drilled over and over and over for centuries. You know, I mean, for you mean however, not shale. <laughs> right. I mean, it, the shell revolution is an interesting thing. And, and it was, it was a political push, a lot of it. Um, but I don't think, I think that we know now, what we know now is like, okay, most of this shell wells are not economic. I've been in them. I've been like partnered in the wells and I've dr- I drilled probably rode alongside Aubrey McClendon in Oklahoma when he was at American energy partners in 50 to 75 wells and, you know, they'd come on, I'd be cheering because he'd come on at a thousand or 1200 or 1800 barrels a day. Everybody likes that IP, right? Oh, and then the decline was like 60, 70% in a couple months, you know? And then we forget about it because it's a bad story. Then you're like, shit, what just (laughs) happened to me? You know, I counted all this money. I went and bought a new car, you know, whatever. So (laughs) I think like going back to like, let's go back to what's, what's safe, but there's still opportunity. And, mm-hmm. and I think there's opportunity in the minerals right now. I think there's a big opportunity. I think if you're a, for lack of a better term, like M and a, like if you're an M and a type person, if you're an arbitrage type person, that's what you're looking for. There's that term again. But if you're mm-hmm. looking for opportunity to imagine here, look at all the people that are going out of business and being gobbled up into other portfolio companies Mm -hmm. that are like, let's take, for example, like we did a lot of leasing and, and uh, mineral buying for Lux energy partners out of Austin, Texas, who um, went into Reeves County in in West Texas. And we did, we bought a lot of stuff for them and with them. And, you know, unfortunately they're not going to make it. They, they had to fold up into, uh, their backers portfolio mm-hmm. company Camino Natural Resources and Camino runs them now. So there's going to be a consolidation of a lot. My point is you're going to have opportunity like the Lux assets. Well, if you know what you're doing and you can dig in and you don't mind calling, like asking the pretty girl to the prom, you know, call, call Lux up and say, Hey, or Camino and say, are any of those assets going to be for sale? Are you going to put any of those on the chopping block? Well, well, so here's that point real fast is that we have a lot of people in energy who we don't like to say, well, that's the way it's always been done. And yet we fall into that cycle. We right. can prove it up better than the last guy. I mean, they did a great job, but we have all this evidence that this is behind pipe or they didn't get their operating expenses down enough. We have the technology right. now. The right. reality is, is are we really doing it better or are we just looking for another fund to take over? I mean, seriously, for all these, right. you know, hotheads who are like, hey, I've been doing this for 10 years now. I'm going to go start an oil company. Are you really thinking outside the box? Are you really looking for a unique, yeah. imaginary 
opportunity that makes you better than the last. No, you're money chasing money, right? I mean, that's <laughs> something that you've said to me before. This is just money chasing money. It's the, it's the dog chasing its own tail. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it's when the private equity players get into anything, it ruins everything. It's just like, that's just how it is. I mean, because it's, they're all chasing yield and return. And it's like, everybody's just going to promise more and more yield. And eventually somebody's going to be holding the, it's hot potato, right? Eventually mm-hmm. somebody's holding the potato, you know, and, and burns their hand. And that's what we're seeing right now. It's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, you got caught, <laughs> you got caught and you're the one that, you know, musical chairs is over and you yeah, don't have anywhere to a sit. Portion of the fund folding into another portion of the fund. And it's, it's, actually, right. it's actually kind of interesting that you say that because to that point, you've had to prove your track record. You've yeah. had to account for successes and failures and really put your life on the conference room table and see if they're willing to invest in you. And on the other side of the coin right now, a lot of people are saying that the money has been circling this private investment, the bank investment, not the private equity group. They've been waiting for this bubble to pop one way or another so that they can get into the game now. So before we jump into proving up your track record and actually looking at, can I make this sale? Can I get people to invest in me? What do you think about the investors right now? Is there a lot of talk in the weeds about what can we get or who can we invest in? Yeah. uh, Yes. And I think that even start, I'm going to start small and where I'm going to start is a guy that I has been a mentor of mine for a long time. Uh, His name's Jim Hatcher. It's a guy from Oklahoma city. Um, He is just the, the quintessential. I mean, he's 70 something years old now. But he has been in the oil patch before Aubrey even started, you know, and he's got like letters that Aubrey sent him like letters. when Aubrey first started out, you know, letters that of like wanting to lease him or lease stuff that he yeah. had, and which is pretty neat to see. But this guy is a sage, right? And he always times things right. It's, it's like maddening because you're like, oh, my God. But he's just so patient. He's like a buffet of the oil field. And it's little hidden guys like this. Mm-hmm. that have the ability to be backed by big people that he's just been sitting around waiting for this moment. So there are guys that are going to, you're going to look at and are going to make really good deals. There are guys, girls, I'm using that term synonymously, yeah, yeah, yeah. not gender specific. There are people <laughs> that are going to be sitting around making great deals here, right? Mm-hmm. That's going to happen. But the what are they investing in? Are people? they investing in the same cycle or are they just looking to make it better? What What is causing them to take that leap now? Yeah, some of them, some of the stuff they're going to be investing in. And, and the problem I was going to say is not the small people like that, that that are going to niche in and find the good, real good value. It's going to mm-hmm. be the private equity players and people that come in and say, you know what, like you said, we can do this different. We can do this better. See, they screwed up over here. But really, we've got the magic formula. So give us 250 million and we'll make it right. That's there's going to be people that there are going to be people that take that approach and that's not going to work. I mean, it's we're in a vicious cycle, right? Mm-hmm. But there there is going to be opportunity. I mean, there there will be opportunity for sure. I think that you're going to have to look at it like 90% of what's out there is probably shit assets. Yeah. Not worth anything. Uh, you've got a more technical background than I do, but you know, it just as well as I do, you can't just, this is what happened with a bunch of the people that were private equity back. You can't get an engineer 
and, and a geologist together and cobble a team together and then go, you know, come up, basically come up with a prospect. Yeah. We need the you rock to come, as a parent is all of a sudden it's great. <laughs> right. We need you to come up with something here. So, um, that, yeah, there's 90% of what's out there is probably shit and just needs to die to be mm -hmm. honest. And there's probably 10% of like good, valuable stuff out there. But your yeah. mentor is looking for an actual new idea. He sees an upside coming from innovation. Maybe yes, sort of innovation, but he's also willing to play like the long game. See, that's the problem with everybody right now in investors and the climate that's been in the oil and gas market has been like, let's make quick money, lots of money really quickly. I mean, that's when people start to get in trouble, right? Yeah. I mean, you build a management team up and you, you build an asset up and then somebody comes in and buys you for 10x or whatever it is, you know, on your EBITDA. That eventually that is going to run, you, that runs out, right? So then you have people that build assets and teams and pour money into stuff and they're looking to get bought out by the next player and mm -hmm. the next player never arrives. And I, can it really be fixed though? I mean, when you're purchasing or putting all this money in, can that money really be made back? I mean, what have you seen behind the closed doors in the boardroom? What discussions yeah. are happening that I call it the dark side of money? What's the reality that people aren't discussing? Yeah. So that's funny. So like, uh, let's take, for instance, like I had a, and I'll, I'll just be open about it. I had a business relationship where when we were backed by several men, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, we went out and we leased and, and bought a bunch of minerals in uh, Oklahoma in a certain area. And this is all public record, so I can talk about it. But um, now <laughs> I can flavor. talk about it. Right. I'm just going to put that out there. Right. No. But so at the time, there were some private equity groups and a couple that I knew really well, and I won't name them, but uh, that were they were friends of mine, and they said, "Hey, you know, we're about to get this another another round of funding, and we're going to go over here." They kind of point and click, like, "If you go over here and aggregate some stuff, we'll buy it from you, you know, and you're going to make a lot of money." Mm -hmm. So we assembled a team, and we already had the team, but we we put our our eggs in one basket and got all the money behind us and went and tried to do that. Well, then the price of oil plummeted, and then <laughs> and then nobody came for what we we had assembled. Yeah. And so the answer is like, no, you can't fix that. And then shit went sideways from there because people are unhappy. People are like, Oh my God, we were going to make all this money. And what happened? They start looking for blame and looking for fault. Mm -hmm. And that's looking when you're for lawsuits looking for law. Somebody has to be wrong. Yeah. Okay. In that scenario, somebody has to be wrong. So I don't think that the cycle will be fixed. Catherine. I really don't. That's interesting. But there's always, don't you think there is always going to be money chasing money yes. and chasing like to, to make more. That's well, just that the, goes back to my argument at this point in the game. And I mean, I do it. We forecast, we yeah. assume risk and we try and model it, but risk right. and uncertainty are models built on no data. You're correct. It's future. You don't that's, know. That's why it will never be fixed. Catherine. So, when, when an investment is being made, when an $11 million, $13 million, right. drilling investment is being made, something along those lines, um, and it fails, and there's a discussion between senior management and whoo, <laughs> private equity. Microphone attack. 
Yeah. What's happening? What is being discussed when the piper comes to collect? Well, I've seen it firsthand and it's not pretty. So typically the management team gets around the table and I'm not going to name names on these types of stories, <laughs> but the management team gets around the table and the money comes in and the money says, Hey, where's our money? The money is aggressive. The <laughs> like, money. Where, is where's the money that you promised us? It doesn't look like we're going to get. And what are we, what would it take to make this back? How are we going to get out of this? Blah, blah, blah. Because the money's looking at their lender. Their lender is saying to them, hey, where's our money? And the money, private equity, is looking at you going, or the management team going, hey, where's our money? So everybody's then, then it's who's accountable. And you're, mm -hmm. if you're the lowest guy on the total, totem pole, you are accountable. You're the oh, one. Oh, yeah. You're gone. You're the one. You're, you're going to be, all the blame will be pinned on you. No question. So with that said, they're going to look at you. And, and, and in an instance that, that I actually heard, witness firsthand it was it was a big company and they owned wells fargo hundreds of millions of dollars 700 plus million dollars and wells fargo is a little shady too they yeah, make news every other month it seems they're all shady let's be honest i mean nobody, nobody's real honest out there that's throwing around billions of dollars but nonetheless wells fargo comes in and says you know how are we going to get paid back and the ceo of the company that was on the hot seat said it would literally take $250 plus oil for us to make this money back. And Hey, I applaud that like honesty. He had the balls to put it on the because table. Because Most people would be squirming and like trying to shuck and dive and say, Hey, you know, we can make it this way or that way or possibly, mm -hmm. you know, and then you're forecasting more shit. But, <laughs> but you know, I mean, that's like, it's a never ending cycle. Right. But, that's that's the conversation that has to be had at some point is like, no, you don't understand. We can't make this back. Mm -hmm. Like we will not survive this. And there that's the a good point for right now. How many people do you think, Catherine, teams, blah, 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 companies are not going to survive this? I mean, we're seeing it every day. There's a chapter 11 and chapter seven. It's, I call it the age of consolidation. What yep. concerns me about the age of consolidation is there is a very solid chance that the people that remain are super majors or extremely large, still mid-strides, but extremely large, very diversified. Just because you have that doesn't actually mean you are practicing good business. Oh, and with this change in crew that we're experiencing and where I'm going to sort of get some tactical steps from you here soon is that it's time for a change. It's time for an evolution on the management side of the conversation. And that only happens with crew changes. So right. how do, how does management evolve? How do we not necessarily come up with, you know, a more transparent, I guess, uh, financial statement, but how do we make better decisions? Okay, so I'm just going to use a real world example that we see today that seems really pertinent. And this is what it's going to take. And this is why now I'm not necessarily saying it was him and a lot of people didn't like him. A lot of people got screwed by him. I got screwed by him. But I'm going to bring up Aubrey McClendon again. And I'm going to bring up the T Boone Pickens people of the world. The, the industry needs some mavericks. Okay, and I feel like we don't necessarily have those anymore. And what do I mean by Mavericks? We need good, good Mavericks, though. Um, now, let's look at this in comparison to the automotive industry. And the easy example is Elon Musk. 
Okay. He's a hero of mine. And I think he's an amazing, if you don't think he's amazing, I, you need to go back under the rock that you've been living under because <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. He's a man crush for me. Did right? you see, okay. Just totally throwing this out there though. Did you see his tweet about taking the red pill? A yeah. little bit of me was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Like now I'm not saying he's not insane. I think he's probably an alien. <laughs> But oh, like, he's definitely an alien. Right. Then there are aliens among us in my mind. So like, I think he just counts as into that, into that group, but I'll tag him I, in your show notes. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> what I know is like the, I'm not going to pitch the renewable scenario. I'm not going to, because there's always a place, right? If you've ever read the moral case for fossil fuels, that's a good book to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important, right? We're relying on it uh, the way, the way that it is. But like you said, we need innovation. Just like you're not going to kill. But innovation all- doesn't only mean technology. Innovation right. just means a new face of an oil company, a new structure, a new strategy, not a way of doing oil. things. Right. Yeah. It may not be a new technology, like you said, but hey, like a changing of the guard of management mm-hmm. and how things are done. Like, you know, this whole like, like I don't wear a tie anymore. <laughs> Even stuff like that. Like who I started out wearing a tie. Wearing a tie is stupid. Nobody likes it. <laughs> It's uncomfortable as shit. You know, you're not, you, you hate being at the office because you can't breathe, you know, and you've got this tie on and it sucks and you're sweating. And I mean, my point is like this little stuff like that, like, and then people start to follow suit. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see like an Elon Musk creating Tesla and creating a culture, a culture. We need a culture shift. That's what it is. We need a culture shift. You know, it's like the Googles and the Facebooks and the stuff like that. The Amazons that, you know, have they been innovative? Yes, but they've also been culturally innovative. People like working at Apple. Right. They, going, well, they put a net around their China facility to keep okay. suicides out. Come on okay, now. Okay. Okay. Maybe not like, maybe not at that level. I'm talking about like people, th- there are environments and cultures yeah. that are being creative, created in new businesses that, it's the way the world is now and needs to be. And the oil and gas world is pretty far behind on that. I think. Oh, we're very much stuck in what I call the early eighties. And yeah. to your point, a cultural shift does not mean it's necessarily this awesome work life balance. In many cases, it means it's a lot harder, a lot more demanding, right. but there's, there's, I guess, you galvanize your team, you make yes. them a part of the end goal. And, right. You don't become the nine to five company. You become the all in roundtable collaborative, you know, discussion. The future right. is based off of your opinion and you get to find your voice. Right. And I think that's like, uh, I mean, we need that so bad. Do I know what that looks like? No, I, don't, <laughs> I can't sit here and tell you I know what it looks like. If you figure you, it out, you'll be a billionaire. Right. I can tell you that it's needed for sure. It's needed. Yeah. I mean, you and I don't want to work for the companies that Harold Ham started in, you know, I mean, that's <laughs> not, <laughs> you know, we're not, I'm not that, you know, I'm not that. And I, do I appreciate it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was the groundwork was laid by people like that. I get it. And I appreciate it. It's just not where we are right now. A hundred percent agree. So we're seeing a changing of the guard. We're seeing the introduction of lean money, which is people want to be up in your business more. They're not going to trust you just solely based off of your track record because what the changing of the guard means that most people seeking this new opportunity, this new imagineering, 
they don't have a track record. So what tactical steps, given your successes, your failures, I mean, ultimately people are investing in you to protect their funds. How did you navigate that? What did you do to build up that relationship and ultimately make that pitch? Okay. So I'm going to answer this with like the most basic answer ever that was taught to me uh, very early on, which I think is like, if you're trying to not necessarily just raise money, but do a deal period, Mm -hmm. you always look, it has to be a win-win game, right? For everybody. The scenario has to be a win-win. Look, if you go to somebody with an idea, they never care what it can do for you. They want to know how how can it benefit them, not you. They don't care what you're getting out of it. If it benefits them enough, they again, they don't care what you're getting out of it. So that means they don't care how much money you're making out of it. Mm -hmm. The, 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 The deal is to connect with somebody. Connect, don't just communicate. Connect. When you walk in to talk to somebody, learn their story, talk to them, learn them. Don't run in there and try to sell them an idea right off the bat. They want to know, they want to see them and you and you and them when so they can do how that. How are you going to work for them? Not how right. are you going to be partners? Cause when they're giving you their money, they might call it partnership, but the reality right. is, is you are their bitch and you have to be able to deliver. And Here's the most important principle. You always need to have some skin in the game. Everybody wants you to have skin in the game. Think about when you have an idea, it doesn't matter if you don't have any money. You need to go into this where you're, they can see that you're properly incentivized to do what you say you're going to do for them. How do you determine what, if you don't have the funds, what can you do to properly incentivize or, or to prove that you're properly incentivized? Catherine, um, I need $100,000 from you, okay, for this investment over here. I think this investment is going to return $50,000 inside of six months. So we'll make $100,000. i will give you your $100,000 back, plus we'll make $50,000. But I don't get paid a dime until you make X. So there's no upfront. There's a, you're working. You're bootstrapping. You're yes. working for free until the profit comes, and then you pay them first. And then after they're paid and they've made what they want to make, you get a cut. I mean, you might have to start there. I had to start there at one point. You might have to start there because if you don't have any money to put in, the other thing is, hey, I need $100,000 for this investment. You put in 80, I'll put in 20 if you've got a little bit. And then we'll split profits at the end of the day and whatever formula you can come up with, whatever percentages. But people want to know, like, you've got something in the game to lose. I think that's fair. How, how though do you find your money? How do you find your investment investors? I mean, let's not talk family and friends here because that's, that's small money, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's kind of just bullshit. You're not going to buy and build an oil company on a hundred bucks from grandma. You're just not. So I was once told never try and start something unless you already know your exit strategy and who's giving you the funds. Not everybody has that. And I actually think that that takes a lot of the hustle out of it. So how do you go and get in front of the money and how do you find your audience? Okay. So back real quickly to what you said, to your point, like never, never start something unless you know the exit and the money that's going to be behind you. 
uh, I can take that and I can leave that that some in some in some sense because I believe firmly that if the idea and the strategy is good enough and you've proven yourself a little bit along the way, there is all the money is always there. It's always there. It's there somewhere. I promise you. Mm-hmm. What I'm gonna you gotta go find it. You got to go find it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you first, you've got to build some sort of a small track record. Your first deal, you're going to have to like really, I mean, you're not going to go to the big guys and the big guys are not going to fund your first deal. Okay. They're, they're going to be like, what have you done? And then you're going to say, well, nothing, this is the new deal. You're going to have to find some people that will help you out like a little bit along the way. Everybody gets help initially, but to stray away from the friends and family conversation, when you do decide to go bigger, and whatever form that is, you need to go armed with knowledge. You need to go armed with some experience, which is some sort of a track record. You have to have a story and a cohesive story and you have to not, this is um, maybe you cannot be afraid to ask the pretty girl to the prom. You have to do it because if you don't ask it, w- definitely won't happen. Worst case, asked, they say no. They're going to say no. You're going to get 150 no's to one half of a yes, you know, I mean, like you're, but you're going to have to, you have to literally beat the streets and you have to talk to people and say, Hey, do you know any, we're doing this. Do you know anybody that would be interested in investing it? No, I don't. Or yeah, maybe I know this person over here. Let me introduce you and just start rolling. And eventually you'll catch a break. I always say it's like a dam raising money and getting there is like a dam on a river. You, you hit it with just, thing after thing, try after try after try. Eventually it springs a little leak. And then what happens when it springs a leak? Eventually it busts up. So you're, you know, you have got to hit it hard and you're, you got to have the strategy and the knowledge to do it. How do you address failure in your track record? (sighs) Learning experiences. But I mean, how do you actually have that conversation? Because nobody likes to talk about when they fucked up. And like you said, Everyone needs to blame someone. There's someone on the bottom of the totem pole. It was their fault. Own well, it. I'm sorry, but you were in charge. Own it. Own it. 100%. It's 100% your fucking fault. Own it. <laughs> Own it. I mean, just say, hey, this was my part in it. This is what I did. And don't cast the blame on other people. Nobody wants to hear you blame anybody else. Mm-hmm. That's a rule of thumb, right? Like in life in general, like nobody wants to hear you blame anyone else. Like own it. It's your shit. You did it. You definitely had a part in it. Yes, it takes two to tango always, but you had a part in it. So own that part and tell how you learned from it and tell how you would do it differently. What did you do? Because nobody really ever starts out. I mean, you can go top financial schools in the country and not really anybody until you're in industry, energy, oil or otherwise. Do you understand how to follow the money and the flow of money within said industry? So what did you do to get in the weeds and to understand what people really wanted to see when you were chasing the capital? Read. For sure. Read. Now you've got like, and when I first started out, you didn't have this, but podcasts like we're on right now. Read, listen to podcasts, follow people, go to YouTube, look people up. Like you can learn so much. And I mean, if you don't like a book or YouTube that you really paid attention to when you were building those statements, those forecast, everything, those financial models. I think that as far as, Building financial models. I mean, this is going to sound like terribly boring, okay? But in in the oil and gas sector, this is how I had to to, to learn as as far as like academically, so to speak, was looking at investor presentations 
from different companies. You mm-hmm. can learn a lot from those to be real. I mean, you can learn estimated ultimate recoveries. You can learn what that is. If you don't know what an EUR is, you know, you learn, there are lots of things to be learned from. There's a lot of it bullshit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you still can learn a lot. Okay. And you also can learn where different companies are going, where they're going to put their capital, what they're doing, what quarter one, two, three, four is going to look like. You may not even know what quarter one, two, three, or four means, but <laughs> I mean, you, you can learn that along the way. Right. I would start at investor presentations. As far as books, I mean, pick a damn book up. There's a million and one different business books, but like pick up books of not just people that tout that they're good, like people who have done shit. Yeah. You know, I mean, pick up Mark Cuban's book. He's an asshole, but he knows a lot. You know, pick up, pick up Boone Pickens' book. He was an asshole, sort of, but he knew a lot. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, you just pick up the people that you would want to like learn from. And, I, and, and then reach out to the people. You know, that's the thing that I've found like most impressive. And like, it's like the only like good that I feel like is maybe left in humanity is that's a little bit of hyperbole, but still um, <laughs> is, is when, when I found like people that were like really successful, like Aubrey McClendon, for instance, I'll go back to him. Like when I first started like following him and stuff and I reached out to him, people respond when you, honestly and sincerely want to learn from them. People want to teach people. Absolutely. They got to pay the knowledge forward because otherwise it dies with you, which is probably one of the reasons we get caught in a rut and chase our own tail. Right. So, so that's, that's my, like, is like, could I name off a a billion different, like the people that I follow nowadays are all business people from all over the map. Like I love like, and I I follow like just motivational people, Mm -hmm. like former Navy SEALs and stuff like that. Like, People that have the right mentality, because I believe the right mentality is it starts the ball rolling with everything. Um, Absolutely. But you gotta yeah. have a little tenacity, a little gumption to get it a going. A lot. A lot. Yeah. You're gonna have to be told no a lot. You're gonna have to embrace failure. It's just the way it is. I just I'm good at saying no, but when I hear no, what it really means is not now. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> Right. And that that might be because I'm Southern and born without the gift of shame, but you know, whatever. Well, I mean, I had the same thing. I was actually telling my fiance, I, I'm divorced and getting, I'm, I'm engaged now, but I was telling her that, yeah, I know, I am lucky. Maybe she's lucky. I'd like to think she's lucky. But, <laughs> but when I was a kid in school, you know, I'd always like ask girls out. So her little girl just got asked out by a boy. And I was like, well, did he wrote a note, you know, and I used to write notes to girls and it would say, yes. Will you go out with me? Yes, no. Always put a maybe option. Yes, no, or maybe. Will you go out with me? Yes, no, maybe. Like if you give me a maybe, I feel like, okay, you're saying I got a shot. So did your fiance check yes, no, or maybe? She actually, she was she was a full on yes, which was oh, good. <laughs> which was good, but it kind of like a little bit, I would admit to her, like took a little bit of the challenge out of it. You know, I'm a challenge type of guy and I was kind of hoping for, I think deep down, I was hoping for that like second grade maybe that I used to get, <laughs> you know, like, well, I can still, I still have to chase a little You're bit. You're like, you know? God, I must be so damn good. Now I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I am amazing. I'm fucking amazing. So let's circle back to something that I think you've done a really good job with. Um, and you've been, you've been very blunt and upfront and just, you know, this is the stuff you need to know, but let's talk about financial engineering. Cause I, I feel like we might be headed for another bout of that. And I think it is to your point going to play really heavily in energy policy here soon. So 
when you say financial engineering, it's something honestly to be on the lookout for. It's something that you need to make sure being an investor or seeking capital that you really understand what you're putting on the table. So can you kind of take us through that? And then how is that going to affect the energy policy on both sides? Because it is a battle right now. Yeah, I think that um, that we have a serious, that's like a, that is a really, really serious problem. Um, and, and, and like to be real serious about it, I think that we'll never get out of any of the problems that we're in until somebody sits down and takes the blame and somebody is true and honest about things. And it's hard to be truthful and honest, you know, and I have fallen into that, that trap in the past of telling people what they want to hear. Right. Mm -hmm. That's an easy thing to fall into, especially when you're trying to raise money and get people behind you is to say, Hey, you know, it's going to be okay. Or, you know, here's what I can do for you. And then promising it's that whole adage of over promising and under delivering. I mean, that's like really prevalent. And, and I think what, what, what you, you, you need to look out for and when you're going out to, to forecast, which we all have to do a little bit about it, a bit of it. So forecasting is just do it like reasonably, you know, I mean, just be reasonable and be honest, like don't, and you're going to fudge the EURs on a well and stuff like that or on wells and stuff like that. And, and it's, I mean, it happens all the time, but it, it's, you're going to, you're going to eat it at some point. Oh yeah. No, my favorite is that when people are doing it, they're always thinking, well, the reservoir can produce this. Here's the kicker though. Do you have the infrastructure on surface to get it out? And right. how quickly is that? Everything goes back to time. Okay. Right. Yes. In today's market, you could make a billion dollars. That's awesome. But the question is how quickly? Right. And if you're honest about how quickly, then you can probably more properly forecast. Sure. I, I think you're, you're right. And I think that's just like properly forecasting would save us all a lot of trouble. Would you recommend uh, for all those, those that have a good idea? And I say an idea is bullshit until you put it on paper until you and make it actionable. You need to turn your idea into energy. But for all those that are mulling it over and thinking about their next steps, would you be investing and putting your own skin on the line with uh, oil and gas and any energy right now? Uh, probably not. <laughs> probably. What do you predict that we are missing? That's not being discussed. How's that? <laughs> what is your prediction? Like the, the total fallout that's going to happen has not, we haven't even, we don't have the tip of the iceberg yet. And what I mean by that is like, you're seeing some, like you said, chapter 11, chapter seven, stuff like that popping up. Mm -hmm. um, we're not even close. I mean, we're not even close to what all is going to happen. Hmm. I mean, and like you said, the super majors will come in, the Chevrons of the world, the Shells of the world, the Exxons of the world, and they're going to gobble a lot of people up. And then there's going to be a lot of assets that are just going to be written down and abandoned. And you've got to understand that behind every asset like that, there are a thousand different mineral owners that we're counting on revenue from that. And stuff like that. And, and, and a lot of those will be just be shuttered. And, and I think we're, I'm not saying this is doomsday, but we're in for like a rude turnaround. There's going to be a long time of like somebody's paying the piper because back to what I told you the other day, like the 2008 housing crisis, like nobody 
it, it's what we don't want to do. This is the 2008 housing crisis for oil and gas. And somebody's going to take it on the chin at some point. And, and we just need to probably go ahead and get that over with now. Will we do that? Probably not. We'll bail it oh. out. We'll figure out how we can bail it out. Financial engineer a bunch of shit so that we can, we can get around like paying the piper. But somebody somewhere someday is going to pay the piper. We have to. That's interesting, especially from someone who's mixed in the money. You know, you're you're calling it like you see it. And I definitely appreciate that. But, you know, not too many are willing to be that frank about it. And I think that that's to your point. That's uh, that's part of taking it on the chin. Yeah. I mean, it's one black eye now or two later. <laughs> I mean, take your pick. Somebody is getting hurt. It's just the way that it is. I would just be, and I, when I said that, when I paused, when you asked me what, how I would get my own money involved in the energy industry right now, I would just be extremely careful. Are there are there opportunities that would be good? Yeah. But to your but, point, you need to have some imagineering to make those opportunities profitable. You do. And uh, don't look, yeah. I just uh, see the forest through the trees right now, okay? Because there's a lot of little noise and trees popping up everywhere. And that's what people are focusing on. But the, the reality of the situation, we have to have a shift and it, it's, it's time. It will, it will happen. It has to happen. Yeah. Blake, you have given us such great information. You've got some honest insight, some really good insight that you, others are afraid to have that conversation. And I've, I've really appreciated it. I, I kind of hate cutting off the conversation at this point, but, but before we go, you're incredibly well-read. You've got a lot of people you follow, you study, and what is a book, podcast, or other resource that you would recommend to others to sort of get you to unmask the the money? Okay. Um, if we want to talk about just general business books, I would say, and I've mentioned it earlier, I'll go get Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. That pertains to both genders. It's not about dad, really. It's just <laughs> that's just part of the story. But that's I think that is like it teaches you what a liability and what an asset is. And that's like fundamental, like really puts perspective on what what is truly an asset and what's a liability. Just because you buy something and the bank owns it and you're renting it from the bank until you can pay it off doesn't mean it's an asset, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say Kiyosaki's uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad would be a huge one. Um, I would say like read anything about anybody that you think, like I love like Shoe Dog by Phil Knight is amazing. Like there's some amazing, it's, it's about the Nike. You got Phil Knight who started Nike. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Just just like learning about his story and how he went over to Asia to bring tiger shoes over, you know, which are basically ASICs over here. And had no, he didn't even have a company name. They asked him in the boardroom, well, okay, we'll let you bring them over to America. How much do you want? And he's like 20,000 pair. And they said, well, what's the name of your company? And he had to make one up on the fly. And he just called it Blue Ribbon, Blue Ribbon Company. So, <laughs> like, I mean, stuff like that, I think, is just so inspiring because that, that he went from that to Nike. Okay, you can yeah. go from, in, you know, nothing to something. I mean, it's, it's possible. fine to rebrand. It is fine to elevate right. your brand. People think that once you come up with the title, you got to hold to it. Right. But no, you evolve. Right. And that goes back, that whole like little Nike blurb I just gave goes back to the whole idea of like, you know, don't be afraid to ask the, the most important person, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and sometimes you may get cart before the horse. Like you may get that 20,000 pair of shoe order to bring over to the United States and you don't even have a name of a company. That's okay. 
just get yeah. out there and hustle. So I would say like those would be books that I would read, stuff like that. I'd follow like the the greats like Elon Musk, Jeff, Jeff Bezos. What are they doing? What have they done? How have they gotten there? Uh, mm -hmm. The more, you know, I would say as far as oil goes, I mean, you can read the prize. That's laborious and very academic, but you can like get through that and get some history on that. But I mean, you can go to uh, Frackers is a great one. Funny Money is a great one. Oil and gas. I mean, there's tons of, like I said, the moral case for fossil fuels. Just just pick some shit up. Yeah. And, then, and then as far as podcasts, I would say like I reached out to you because I like this one. I think <laughs> it's great because I think it's like a you can cuss on, you know, and it's I, like, hey, we all cuss. Let's not pretend. We, we have some words in our vocabulary. Let's not pretend we don't cuss here. OK, we're adults. <laughs> like and, and so I think that's a breath of fresh air. What you're trying to do and put like an innovative spin and like a cultural shift. Right. That yeah, we talked about. Absolutely. So, so follow some people like you and follow some people like. Is there uh, any financial ones that you listen to? Yeah. Um, there's a one called the billionaires podcast, which I would say it's on Spotify and all of them. That's probably one of my favorites because it profiles like the Mark Cubans of the world, the Richard Branson's of the world, Jeff Bezos of the world has them talking on you know, different, different places where they've been interviewed and stuff. And these guys talk about you know, what they've cool. what they've done, how they got to where they've gotten and stuff. So the billionaires podcast would be another one I, I would look at for sure. Awesome. I will make sure to put those all in the show notes below because that is quite a reading list. And honestly, I think it's time people hit the books. So yeah, sure. Blake, thank you so much. This has been such a fun conversation. I promise not to hold it against you that you are from Arkansas. <laughs> You can't. You're from Mississippi. You literally can't. Throw it in there. Yeah. yeah. You wish you were like Mississippi. No, 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 no. no, no. Let's not go too far here. Uh -huh. Well, thank you so much. This has been so eye-opening, such an honest conversation, and honestly, one that I think is going to benefit so many people, especially yeah. those looking to get in front of capital because that is a hard, hard task and, you know, path to take. But thank you so much. And I can't wait to see what people come back and start asking you. Yeah. Thanks, Catherine. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs>